0: This is episode 36 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast.
1: Welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast, helping you to discover how to be older without growing old. And here's your host, turning this whole idea of aging upside down, Lee Molot. I want to welcome you
0: back to the Inner Game of Aging podcast. This is episode 36. We are always intrigued by the possibilities of the future. What problems will we be able to solve tomorrow that we are not able to solve today? What conveniences will grace our lives tomorrow that don't exist right now? As baby boomers and older, we have seen many changes in our world, and these changes keep on marching forward. Our world today is so unlike what our world was when we were children. Technology is largely responsible for many of these changes. It has enabled so many new approaches in so many areas. My guest today is Ira Pastor. He is the CEO of a company named BioQuark, that is doing some very interesting research in the area of human cellular regeneration. What is cellular regeneration and why is it important? You will be able to answer such questions by the time you finish listening to this episode. Ira does a wonderful job in explaining these concepts so that even I can understand them. But the significance of this area doesn't just lie in the future. Many benefits of this research are present with us today, as Ira will explain. These benefits include promising approaches to treating cancer that can actually reverse its damage. That alone should catch the attention of many people looking into this. The conversation you are about to hear is everything an outsider or layperson needs to know about human cellular regeneration. Consider it a primer that will enable you to determine fact from fiction as this area starts to become publicly accepted in our environment. Now I did make an observation while I was reviewing this conversation during the editing process for this episode. I observed that every time I did not understand what Ira was saying, I asked for clarification in the name of my audience to help them understand. And this was most certainly my intention to be clear for my audience and to make sure that they understood what we were talking about. But what I noticed was that I did not own my own lack of understanding. Instead, I assigned that lack of understanding to the general audience instead of me. This says something about me, but I'm not going to bother with this right now. Instead, let's get right into this educational and intriguing conversation. However, just a quick reminder that you will find more information about this topic on the show notes page for this episode. And while you were there, join the Insiders Club to get access to more information that will help you master your aging process. You can find the show notes page at the following URL inner com forward slash IGA thirty six. It is also a good place to leave comments and feedback and to let us know just how you like the show. We would like to inspire as many people as we can to find the path through their older years that creates true legacy for them and and substantial contribution to those for those they leave behind. My first question to you, Mr. Pastor, you are the CEO of a company called Bioquark. Bioquark, mm-hmm. did I pronounce that right?
2: Perfect.
0: Okay, um, that is heavily involved in. You know, cellular, re- cellular regeneration. Can you Let's start off by telling me a little bit about yourself and a lot about BioQuark as a company.
2: Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So sure. Um, yeah, I am a, uh, a pharmacist by undergraduate training that uh, went to business school and spent the last 30 years or so uh, in one facet or another of what you, know, you would think of as the traditional pharmaceutical industry
2: from Hmm.
1: big pharma sales and marketing to biotech drug development to on down to retail pharmacy uh, dispensing prescriptions. So, you know, it's the area that I grew up in. And while it was a fascinating industry and generated a tremendous amount of wealth uh, over the last century or so, you know, I got pretty dismayed after a while at the fact that although Uh, We were pulling in, you know, close to $1 trillion a year as an industry, uh, spending $200 billion annually on new research that we were really doing very poorly with regard to curing any of the chronic uh, diseases responsible for human degeneration, uh, suffering, and and death. Uh, We were very good at making treatments for things. Um, That, you know, is no doubt. When it came to the big ones, the Alzheimer's and the cancers and the diabetes and on down the line, the things that really affect us as a species, um, with the exception of the antibiotic, you know, a 100 plus years ago, we really weren't doing too well. And so I wanted to set this company up from a little different angle. uh, As a company that instead of looking at the what we call the outputs of disease or the symptoms, hmm. uh, looking at the underlying reasons why we get sick in the first place, why we transition into a state of Alzheimer's or cancer or Parkinson's or what have you, and figure out how to turn back those dynamics. Hmm. Um, and we at the company, we, we talk a lot about learning from nature. Um, and we do that because as undoubtedly many of your Uh, Listeners are aware uh, there are many species out there uh, in the biologic world uh, who don't have the problems we have to. (laughs) Uh, There are many species that are very good at complex forms of regeneration, uh, whether that be limbs or parts of the spinal cord of the heart or major parts of the brain. Mm. Um, There are also species out there that shrug cancer off like it was the common cold, now, can I, let
0: me let me just stop just a little bit because I, I'm I'm agreeing with you that there are many you know, in the animal kingdom there are many capabilities that the human does not have, mm-hmm. um, and you know it, many of these capabilities regard regard our own health. For example, the human does not produce vitamin C, while many animals do produce their own vitamin C. There are differences between differences between the species. That's just one of them. Um, and um i'd like to suggest and i would like you to handle not necessarily now but in a later part of the conversation when we get into the philosophical aspects of all of this these differences of species you know is there a purpose for these differences should i be looking to jump as high as a cat can jump or you know or meld or you know because the animal kingdom exhibits these qualities doesn't mean that i too should be able to develop a mechanism for my own internal vitamin C for example rather than getting it from my nutrition. So that's one of the questions that I will have us bear in mind as we talk and continue here because a lot of our models do come from nature and as as you know I'm a lot of my own personal models come from nature as well but as I look at nature I know that there's a difference between man and fish for example and this difference should be is proper, or should I look to defeat this difference? Should I look to stay underwater as long as a fish should be, does? So let's, you know, let's bear that question in mind as you continue, because you enter into some very intriguing scientific and philosophical questions. Absolutely. So, so yeah, there are many animals that can regenerate the um, parts of their limbs or organs, but what conclusion does that lead here? If you can continue where you were going before I interrupted.
1: Absolutely. So uh, you point to a very important area, which is this evolving space known as evolutionary genomics, or basically the understanding of uh, the fact that you and I are not a dog or a snake or a lizard. Mm -hmm. But At the end of the day, what we did discover uh, 20 plus years ago during all of the the human genome excitement
2: Mm -hmm. was the
1: fact that although we possess 25,000 protein-coding genes, uh, so did the chimp, and so did the dog, and so did the pufferfish. And so what we found out was that we were unique in certain senses, but in other ways, maybe not as much as we thought. And so it's very important to understand, as you just point out, that in many ways, genetically, we're all the same. <laughs> yes. But it's sort of how that genome is accessed and the what we call the architecture around it that is a little different. And so, yes, you point out very importantly, we like to show that everything that ultimately hurts us as a species, in some ways, in the evolutionary past, was a benefit. So if you think about high blood sugar levels for a second, where you know, we deal with diabetes and other endocrine dysfunction, well, most you know, fast-sprinting organisms in nature require uh, those large amounts of sugar in the blood when they're running away from a predator. Hmm. Uh, the same thing with, say, inflammation. Uh, it manifests in us in inflammatory diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, all sorts of nasty things that give us a horrible quality of life but many species, it's their only form of infectious disease and defense. So we need to understand these differences, but at the same time realize that uh, as wonderful as our genome is, it it didn't fall out of the sky, uh, and it was built upon previous genomes. And so the understanding of those differences allows us then to think out of the box, well, how do we in certain ways tweak this. Not with complex mechanisms, uh not genetic engineering, but how do we look at the differences and then develop interesting biological methods to reawaken some of these capabilities.
0: Interesting. Uh, Let me let me jump in just for a second because you mentioned that many of things that may be um bothering us today were once were once was a benefit in our past. Mechanisms to respond to stress is such an example. We need to be able to respond you know, vigorously to stress, especially in emergency situations, which were so plentiful in days gone by in our ancestry. Yeah. But today, not so. So our stress response, which is still here with us. Is causing trouble in our species today, as opposed to the benefit that it gave our species many, many eons ago. That's just another example of what you're Absolutely. saying. So,
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. Absolutely. Please continue.
1: And you know, you, you only need to, uh, you know, if you if you take a look at sort of the world of embryology and look at the fact that yes, I mean, we did, you and I and everyone else did possess tails and gills and webbed hands and feet when we were in our mother's wombs. Mm-hmm appreciate the sort of the layers and the and the unique nature of our evolutionary past i mean there's some scientists nowadays that are showing how hey, you know without the concept of cells aggregating together a billion plus years ago uh, using the same mechanisms that tumors use to form nowadays in cancer we wouldn't be here in the first place mm-hmm. so in some ways sort or of we owe our existence to to uh, some really unique what we'll call pathologies but uh, path- <laughs> from history. But mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, whether it's regeneration or whether it's a reversion or a repair of some underlying disease mechanism, you know, ultimately, we are looking to reconnect uh, with a sort of a deeper understanding of how these mechanisms occur and ultimately how we could create interventions uh, to deal with some of the uh, chronic degenerative diseases that are most responsible for.
0: Okay, bed. now let me, for my listeners, let's define what cellular regeneration is. We've been using that term here. Let's make sure that everybody understands what the term cellular regeneration is. Okay.
1: Well, yeah. So, um, so as a as a broad term, we can look at regeneration as a general ability to recreate lost or damaged, and we'll start with cells, tissue organ, and even limbs Mm. that are identical in both structure and function to the original. So um, Mm. there are five, as you undoubtedly did your research, there are five major classifications of regeneration that exist in nature. Humans, we possess three of them, and I'll go into these real fast. We possess a natural physiological turnover. Ability in all the cells in our bodies that rapidly divide. So think blood, think the uh, epithelial layer of our skin, Mm -hmm. think inside of our gastrointestinal tract. Uh, The second type of regenerative capability that we as humans possess is known as hypertrophic, and that is primarily seen in our liver, whereby we can sustain acute damage, uh, but while we will not restore the proper structure, cells will expand and replace a missing part of the liver so in that case we we do not get proper structure but we do get some function back and lastly and most importantly we as humans evolved a very effective wound healing response Ooh. we are a species that bleeds very rapidly and we die very rapidly from loss of blood and evolution has moved in the direction where we favor a a thrombotic and a fibrotic response to healing wounds
0: Uh, Thrombotic, fibrotic. Could you define mm -hmm. those terms for my listeners, please?
1: Basically, when you start bleeding, you need to initially form a a scab Mm -hmm. uh, to to keep the blood in. And then ultimately, if it's a very bad wound, uh, after the scab will come a scar. Okay. Uh, Nonfunctional but fibrotic tissue to, to keep you in one piece.
0: Now, it's just a very interesting diversion from that. Uh, 12, 13 years ago, I had a very serious accident. I had a skin graft on my foot, um, and portion of the skin graft did not take at the back of the foot. So from that time, 12, 13 years ago, I carry a wound on the back of my foot that will never heal because there's no skin there to heal. There's no articulating skin. The healing mechanism you speak of requires a mechanism that resides in the skin layers. um, And so I do not have those layers at a particular spot in my foot. So that wound will only have a scab. It will never heal with a scar underneath it. So, so I understand what you're saying. Please continue. (laughs) So,
1: so those are the major three types of regeneration that all of us, mm-hmm. the audience, the rest of the world possesses. There are two other forms of regeneration in nature. Uh, one is known as epimorphosis, which uh, most commonly we can think of in the uh, the amphibian kingdom. So think of the, the salamander, the newt, uh, whose uh, spinal cord can be severed, whose arm can be bitten off by predator. And it will regrow and in its entirety in a matter of weeks in both perfect structure and function. Um, And lastly, there is a form of regeneration, which is even more complex, called morpholexis. Uh, Think the starfish. (laughs) I uh, think the uh, the flatworm whose you know, head gets chopped off to regrow an entirely new body and a new head. Um, clearly, these are far beyond uh, human capabilities.
0: Now, uh, I'm not picking up quite clearly the distinction between those last two. I understand that they're different than the first three. But what is the distinction between those last two?
1: A one involves entirely new body segments okay so, but one sort of falls off at uh, a complex limb and organ uh, regeneration so you know you can pull out the eyeball of a of a newt sorry to get graphic but you can That's pull right. the out the eyeball will grow again um, in the case of morphylaxis, you're talking about in two entirely new species or two entirely new starfish Generated from chopping the starfish in half.
0: Oh, uh, oh, okay, okay. Uh,
1: the, uh, you know, think of a uh, the worm, the the worm whose head is chopped off, and then the head will grow a new body, and the other body will grow a new head.
0: Ah, okay, okay. Uh, clearly, i get the difference. We are
1: not in that in that technological realm yet, but, but yes. these are forms that uh, that are you know understood and have been studied for many years. So here is the the basis of regeneration in the biologic kingdom as it exists today. Mm -hmm. Um, epimorphic regeneration which we more or less focus on here at the company um, is a very complex form of regeneration that involves many processes uh, operating in synergy Mm -hmm. Uh, this is not you know i come out of the as you know the pharmaceutical industry and we as an industry are very interested in the so-called single magic bullet (laughs) drugs that do simple things we want to lower that blood pressure we want to raise this uh this insulin but when it comes to complex things we 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 do very don't do very well at creating interventions for them but this type of regeneration is very complicated so we are studying at the company what's involved in it Hmm. how via combinations of interventions we could potentially recreate that uh, in complex organ and ultimately limb regeneration in humans that is our
0: goal ah, okay uh, in the short term so that's i think i understand everything you say i hope my listeners do as well it's understandable to me i understand what bioquark does now one of the things in my own research again i have an advantage that my listeners do not i've kept on running cancer against a term that I was confused about and I wanted you to explain it for, for my listeners, biologic drugs. This, um, bioquark produces some biologic drugs. That term biologic is something that I wasn't comfortable that I understood. Could you help me understand that term a little bit better?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So a biologic drug, um, as defined here in, here in the U.S. by our Food and Drug Administration, uh, is any uh, protein or protein slash carbohydrate or any cellular product uh, produced by a living system. <sighs> so, where the output, is, the output can be. Unique in whether, you know, its physiochemical property, if it's a protein or a carbohydrate or a cell or even a gene product, it mm-hmm. is not a synthesized chemical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not a chemical that is produced in the lab and synthesized and put into a pill. So let's uh, put some uh, biologics on the table. So uh, one of the earliest biologics was was porcine insulin uh, derived from the pancreas of pigs back in mm-hmm. the twenties. Uh, recently humanized, but nonetheless a biologic. All vaccines are biologics. All gene, potential gene therapy products would be considered biologics. More recent examples uh, in the popular culture would be a product like Botox, Mm. a multi-billion dollar biologic Mm -hmm. drug produced from botulinum uh, bacteria. It's a protein, but it is isolated from the living culture of that bacteria and then used for Uh, As the audience is not Okay,
0: I'm I'm seeing some examples of biologics, but I'm still not sure that I can express what the difference between a normal drug and a biologic drug might be.
1: Primary difference is it has to be produced by a living cell system, so a living process, not a a chemical process uh, with a.
0: Like penicillin would be a biologic drug, maybe. Well, the
1: I- was produced originally, uh, obviously, via the fungi, but that is now synthesizable. Okay, yeah, okay. Lab. So uh, these it- are things that are not capable of being synthesized due to their complexity.
0: Sure, sure, okay. So they must be derived from a living process. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Now, the, is the work that BioQuark does, does that have any connection? With stem cell research at this point in time?
1: Well, interestingly enough, when we started out a few years ago, uh, we started out as a company involved in what is known nowadays as stem cell reprogramming. So, basically, uh, the ability to take part of uh, your body, your skin tissue, so take Lee Mawatt's skin cell. Uh, play with it in the lab, and turn it into a neuron that we could then transplant into you. So mm-hmm. what is sort of known as ex vivo stem cell production. Mm-hmm. Um, as exciting as that space was, we felt that there was something missing. And the fact that, and we make the analogy, I live here in a house in Philadelphia made of bricks, um, as wonderful as stem cells are as cell products, um, you, there's only so many bricks that you can throw into my house here. Mm-hmm. You will not form a new room. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you will okay. not
1: form a garage. Um, there is more to the process. And we got to thinking, okay, cells are important. Stem cells are very important. But unless they're told what to do, where to go, what to become, they're not going to do us very well. Yes, uh, And that's sort of why we've seen the last couple of decades of the stem cell be rather sort of lackluster. And you know, there was a lot of visions of stem cells as monotherapy sort of by themselves as being the holy grail. Turns out that's not exactly the case. As we're learning from our studies, you need to be able to tell that stem cell to, hey, you know, become... Uh, part Mm -hmm. of my heart uh, Mm -hmm. in the right area. You know, you don't want a heart forming in your foot. (laughs) Uh, So
0: what mechanism would tell, would direct the stem cells become whatever it is to become? What what mechanism would do that normally?
1: Well, that is normally um, we see those dynamics occurring in embryological development. So Ah, during mm. the development of you and I and everybody else in our mother's wombs, There is what is known as the microenvironment of signaling uh, that specifically is telling, you know, there a heart goes here, it needs to be the size of a Mm. a, It cannot be the size of a watermelon. It cannot be the size of a walnut. Mm. uh, It needs to be made up of certain tissues and certain layering and so forth. Uh, That is all very well and taken care of in the nine months in our mother's wombs. Um, what the problem is, if we try to recapitulate that just by stuffing cells into somebody who's grown, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, who's 52 and requires a heart, uh, you know, has scar tissue in the heart, they're missing that piece. And that is what we've been studying because that is mm-hmm. what the salamander, the zebra zebrafish, uh, the flatworm are so very good at. When that heart uh, gets cut, <laughs> <laughs> cut in half. Mm -hmm. specifically, and it's able to turn back time in that tissue to an earlier state when the program for reforming a heart was originally there. And that is where we're going with our program. Don't just throw the bricks into the house. You need the Mm -hmm. workmen. you need the blueprints. You need the foreman on the job. You need all of the intricate signaling and direction that nature is so very good at providing.
0: Now, this all sounds, I mean, scientifically, it sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was an engineer for 30 years, and I'm intrigued by this stuff. And so, you know, so doing the research was a bit, well, I just had to. I had to dig into it just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But as, you know, I've listened to the explanations that you've given us so far, and I have understood them all. How does this unfold into the future? You are working towards certain results. Cellular, regener- cellular regeneration can contribute to our existence with many benefits. I'd like to go to the benefits that we are seeking in going through these efforts here.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, if you look at the, um, the $7 trillion that are spent around the world nowadays on health care. If you put aside infectious diseases for a moment, the majority of that $7 trillion is spent on two things. It's spent on diseases that either have an underlying cellular damage component to them, like your Alzheimer's, your congestive heart failure, your Parkinson's, your type 1 diabetes, and so forth, or these diseases have an underlying cellular degeneration component. So think your autoimmune, your cancer, your chronic inflammation, pain, fibrotic disorders. So the majority of that $7 trillion trickles down to these two classes. And ultimately, we feel either cellular regeneration or cellular repair, which is another R that is mm-hmm. divided, factor into it all. So whether we're talking about research in the area of the central nervous system, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, uh. The whole area of uh, heart and congestive heart failure, uh, diabetes in the pancreas, the spinal cord. Cellular regeneration impacts everything. Uh, and it is ultimately our goal as a company. Yes, we're a small biotech company and we're taking this stepwise uh, to develop along the same lines as the nutritional pharmaceutical industry, uh, looking at a variety of disease indications uh, studying these materials and ultimately moving them into the clinic uh, in different uh, mm-hmm. geographies for their development for specific drug indications. Um, this is, um, you know, drug development 101 from our yeah. perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, we are a U.S. company, so we are very focused on a U.S. program, and we have for three year plans out to get into the clinic. In the U.S., but we are also, you know, we, in the year 2017, we have to realize that this is a rather global community, and there's other countries out there with unique regulatory systems that may allow us to proceed faster, where we are also investigating. But ultimately, our goal is to look at as many diseases with cellular degeneration or damaged components and apply our technology
0: well let's let's talk about a few of these because i know you've done uh, some specific research in a few of these diseases. let's talk about cancer for example how does this apply i mean i can already see and and perhaps my listeners can too with what you've already explained to us but let's talk about how these technologies affect our view and treatment of cancer for example
1: absolutely and that that this is a a unique area and i think the the audience will be somewhat (laughs) intrigued by this one but Mm -hmm. um So uh, cancer, leading cause of morbidity mortality. We have uh, 14 million new cases worldwide each year. We have 8 million deaths. Um, And, you know, it's pretty well-known nowadays. We have existing therapeutic strategies uh, in terms of surgery, radiation, and chemo. Mm -hmm. uh, And we have the newer strategies, smart drugs, immunotherapies, and so forth. At the end of the day, though, they all focus on what we... Referred to as a kill-centric methodology, uh, cancer is something that you kill.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, on one hand, with the the broad spectrum approaches, we see you know sort of a shotgun approach uh, with rapid resistance and development uh, that, and Develops. On the other hand, you have a lot of excitement with the newer therapies, but which are extremely highly targeted. Uh, and while they have amazing results, um, they have amazing results in a very small part of the population. Mm. So we're sort of looking to merge the two. How do we do that? Um, here's a fact. Everything on this planet gets cancer.
0: I was going to mention that. I was just going to mention that it, cancer is almost like a normal state I mean, cancer, the best state of cancer is like a normal state of nature almost. You know, um, you know cancer is one of nature's mechanisms, you know, so.
1: It, it is a mechanism. It goes back over a billion years. You, you know, humans get cancer. Dogs get cancer. Snakes get cancer. Trees get cancer. Everything on this planet gets cancer. And most incident, interestingly, uh, you and I and everyone listening to this broadcast throughout this next hour are fighting cancer. The constant transitions in our body back and forth from healthy to normal uh, and to sort of transformation oncogenic states and back is something we deal with every day of our lives, very quietly in the background. Um, one thing that is not as well known is that while everything on this planet gets cancer, lower organisms are very good at shrugging it off. Uh, and they do so because, unlike us, which are very focused on trying to kill those cancer cells lower organisms are very focused on turning them back into normal tissues. Hmm. And this is not a discovery on our part. This is something that if you go into the scientific literature back into the 1930s and 1940s, when we were first studying carcinogens in the laboratory, you have these really weird papers out there that, You know, uh, we gave some nasty carcinogen to the rabbits, and the rabbits died. And we gave it to the guinea pigs, and the guinea pigs all died. And you gave it to a tank of frogs, and the frogs developed tumors. And two weeks later, they were (laughs) cancer-free. And and it was published in the literature, and no one really thought about it much then. But now, we're relinking some of these studies to the fact that most of the species in, in nature that get cancer and shrug it off are the regenerators. Hmm. And I know this sounds like a double-edged sword, usually, want well, to think regeneration and uncontrolled cell growth, but it is the regenerators that are so good at just turning cancer into normal tissue. So we are very interested, as we enter this new phase of sort of the war on cancer, where you see a lot of the smart folks beginning to say, you know what, we've looked at cancer for the last 50-some-odd years as a cellular-based disease. We're not looking at it, as nature almost looks at it, as a tissue-based disease. And the fact that tumors are not clonal and homogeneous like we used to think they were, but are combinations of cells, they're heterogeneous. And how can we use some of the philosophy that we see in nature to... Forget about the kill event. The kill event is secondary. It is the reversion event that happens in nature that we're so interested in. Hmm. So we are very focused now, and we've been studying this a lot in our internal labs and through partnerships, uh, looking at things like melanoma and breast cancer and glioma and how we can utilize what was found in the literature decades ago, but now from a therapeutic angle. Mm-hmm. We develop biologics that mimic some of those dynamics of tumor reversion that exist in nature, but develop them as therapeutics. And we're seeing some very fascinating results so far in the lab and the petri dish and animal models. And this is one area that we think uh, is really ripe for a, uh, let's say a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. Because as exciting as everything that's going on in in the world of oncology, it's still number one killer. Yes. And, and we have to think out of the outside the box, think a little differently, and you know, once again, we like to go back to nature and study what evolution has has taught many other species
0: this is, this is very i 'm finding this very fascinating so by stimulating our cellular regeneration mechanisms, we might be able to turn our own cancer back into normal cells you 've hit it on the head this is you know, this is now the process of stimulating our cellular regeneration mechanisms. Um, this is the work that biocorpus is, is involved in. Uh, do drugs do this stimulation? Do, you know, how, what, how, what brings about this stimulation of our own latent mechanisms okay. for regeneration?
1: So uh, I'll give you the history that goes into that and where we're focusing. So okay. um, once again, go back. I, I told you about some of the anecdotal things in literature. If you go back to the nineteen seventies. Um the first studies were done on embryological tumor reversion, uh here in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where the first studies were shown that you could take an embryo, so a regenerating, actively developing embryo, non human of course, mammalian, and, <laughs> so an and stuff it full of tumor cells. And when that baby rat or the baby guinea pig or the baby rabbit was born, it was cancer free. Um, similar experiments were also done back then in the area of the plant kingdom. So the concept of the regenerative microenvironment goes back several decades. Huh? We got to thinking okay, how can we mimic that in humans? Uh, and our research took us to an area that recently earned a couple folks the Nobel Prize back in 2012 Dr. John Gurdon and Shinya Yamanaka. Uh, we're looking at ooplasm. So hmm. let, me, let me enter and teach your audience about what ooplasm. Is. Yeah, ooplasm is the internal uh, biologic milieu that is found within eggs. Ah. So we think of the egg. We think of the stem cell as a very exciting cell, but the most exciting cell on this planet is the the oocyte or the egg cell. It is that area. You know, all the ladies stand up and take a bow. <laughs> that cell that is required for all of the natural regeneration reprogramming that occurs uh, when a new embryo is formed in the first place. So it is the reason that um, our 30-year-old sperm comes in and becomes a zero-year-old baby, that the baby is born with a head and two arms and two legs and so forth, and is born with none of the chronic diseases of older age. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ability to reset age, time, disease, genetic damage, all happens in that moment following fertilization, uh, and it is the ooplasm. The sperm really doesn't do too much except deposit some DNA, and then mm-hmm.
2: yeah. <laughs> so anyway,
1: it is that uh, biologic mix that is so important and is really the basis. Uh, so we study the. Could biologic- you spell that
0: word ooplasm for my audience?
1: O-O-P-L-A-S-N. P-L-A-S-N.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay.
1: And so. This has been the crux of uh, the last several decades of reprogramming research in the Petri Dish in terms of cloning experiments, mm-hmm. in terms of, um, you know, interestingly enough, the, uh, some of the original pregnancy tests were based on uoplasm. But we wanted to come from a different angle. We want to say, you know, these eggs are very interesting, and they've been studied for decades. What if we access the biologic components, proteins peptides, microRNAs mm-hmm. that are inside them and responsible for this reprogramming event. And instead of just worrying about more, doing more work in the Petri dish, mm-hmm. focus on drug development and how we can exploit this knowledge finally, which has been out there for 80 years, but exploit it now as a therapeutic uh, potential to use those same biologic moieties as biologic drugs to stimulate regeneration and reprogramming in various human tissues. This is okay. our strategy. And yeah, ultimately, as I said, John Gurdon, um, looks them, he got the Nobel Prize in 2012 for this research, which originally was done in the 1970s. Um, but once again, it, was, it stayed in the Petri dish. And so we are sort mm. of, we admit, we are standing on the shoulder of giants and taking <laughs> the next step okay we believe needs to happen
0: so in this in this way you're developing drugs that uh, that use these ooplasm elements to stimulate the regenerative capabilities in humans That,
1: that is our focus and our strategy correct
0: okay now so of course i can see how this directly applies to cancer um but you have other specifics that you're looking at, for example, kidneys. Um, and, and I was going to ask you, can this? I recently had a stroke. You wouldn't realize it because I re, my recovery was so quick, so almost dramatic after a very bad stroke. But um, I was wondering, it's become my passion. Is there anything here that is relevant to stroke recovery? That, Absolutely. Uh, and if you could talk about that, that, is, that would be a very fascinating area for me.
1: Absolutely. And we we are actively uh, involved in, in the central nervous system. It is uh, probably, you know, people always ask us about our priorities and yeah. everything, all chronic uh, complex three-dimensional regeneration is our priority. The central nervous system is clearly uh, the biggest problem that we as a society have headed our way in terms mm-hmm. of tsunami of Alzheimer's and other CNS degenerative disorders that are estimated to be headed our way in the next couple decades. Mm -hmm. So yes, the central nervous system is extremely important for us. Uh, We are activated not just in the higher central nervous system, but also the spinal cord. And we have been doing a lot of work there. And this is clearly an area that, you know, once again, going back to our model, it requires more than cells. So if you think of the, Uh, the spinal cord of that salamander again and it's Mm -hmm. bitten off by the predator and there's nothing left, they need to form everything that's missing. Uh, And it's not just about cells. It is about the proper structure and development of that spinal column again. Hmm. We need not just to create you. uh, You've you've recovered very well, but we need (laughs) not just to correct the, the stroke patient in terms of the right cells, but we need those cells to connect. Uh, Properly. We need them to grow properly in the right form. You can't have uncontrollable cellular growth. So, yes, this is something that is extremely important to us. We've been spending a lot of time as a company on spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury models. Yeah, yes. Uh, And these are um, equal and I'm not saying that anything's more important than anything else, but they're, they're yeah. all sure. equally important and prescient in, in terms of central nervous system regeneration, and these are uh, all part of our uh, okay. And you mentioned uh, the kidney, and you know, it, oh yes, this is uh, this is one of the earlier models that we got started on, and people were always saying, "Well, I have two kidneys," and we say, uh, "True," however. Um, billion is spent annually on kidney transplantation and dialysis. Uh, And if we uh, as a company can prevent you from having to go down either of those paths, you have to remember you can lose a lot of kidney function before you need that transplant. So Mm -hmm. ultimately, our goal, you know, we don't want you to have to get a transplant. We want to push back the damage early on, yes, right. so that you don't ever have to go down either of those paths. And we, in essence, eliminate the the dialysis marketplace and and, and the transplant marketplace. But yeah, so these are, um, you know, you see the millions of people that die around the world annually just waiting.
0: Yes. For, oh, yes. It's heartbreaking click. sometimes.
1: It's, and so, it's just all. Yeah. Inherent. And so.
0: I wanted to move into an area, you are, the work that you are doing is disruptive to many business models in big pharma. And I wanted to explore that. Big pharma is invested a lot in its approaches to disease and drugs and things of that sort. And your, some of your comments on concepts and premises actually give cures and instead of turning people into customers of drug companies, um, and I wanted to see what sort of response your work has gotten from the bigger drug companies that whose business models may be disrupted by what you 're doing
1: you, you know I, I joke around having spent thirty years there, um, and I have, still have friends that work in the industry and I think mm. it's funny because as they as they work there they I anger them, but when they <laughs> and they get involved in the non big pharma area, they tell you, you know, you're, you're on the right path and yeah. they want to get involved. So, you know, obviously we are going to be, you know, taken to its logical extreme. We're going to be affecting the major industry, major industries. And I look at it as being transformational, not just in pharma, but in, uh, uh, in the wider healthcare space, but yes. ultimately, they have a century old model and it is, you know, based on, and, and I know it's a dirty word in some, areas but reductionism um while you know maybe it served very well in the first century of the industry you know breaking things down to their most simple components looking at genes and cells and so forth which are wonderful uh they ignored what we refer to as sort of the hierarchy Mm -hmm. of Other things that exist above that. So, you know, genes are wonderful, but they don't do anything. They're just information storage vehicles. And you have to think that on top of genes, sit gene regulatory networks, on top of those, sit cell regulatory networks, and so forth. So uh, the pharmaceutical industry has unfortunately evolved in a way that they can't go back. (laughs) they're 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 too used to doing things in a certain way and having their products regulated in a certain way um, to be able to address the bigger issue. So as I said, the, a trillion dollars is spent on eight things. So inflammation, immune response, uh, fibrosis, thrombosis, hemorrhage, and then sort of the basket of cell proliferation and cell death. Ooh. That's a trillion dollars right there, but none of that stuff, which is their bread basket, is are the causes of disease. That's Those right. all the outputs of disease. And so I envision ultimately a sort of separate industry existing for curative interventions. I mean, it's, it's, it's very different mm. because uh, no matter how much you want to uh, do things this way and how much you want to follow sort of the gold standard clinical model that basically looks at outputs and be, hey, let's divide these two groups and we'll give one a drug and one nothing uh, and look at, you know, an output well, mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you anything. It tells you, you know, wow, your drug did a great job in these 100 people that you studied, but it doesn't tell you anything about how it's really going to work in 300 million Americans. Right. So we really are at a unique space in regard to uh, how some of this evolves. Now, that's not to say that uh, all companies are slow in, uh, in taking on these new things. Mm-hmm different than traditional drugs. You see, for instance, um, a lot of activity in the microbiome lately.
0: Yes, yes, that's right. Uh,
1: You know, there's concepts of developing bacterial cocktails as the actual drug. For um, my old employer Glaxo Smith you know, they, they created what 's known as a electroceuticals division where they 're
0: electroceuticals Wow
1: <laughs> uh, where they 're looking to get the drug out of the way and just using the electrical signal to see if you can turn on or off a gene so mm-hmm. you know, there, there is some disruptive thinking that goes on in these companies. But at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. uh, it may be just too much for them to (laughs) (laughs) business model entirely. Okay. There's going to be a space for us. uh, Okay.
0: um, Have you, um, with that in mind, have you had any contact with Big Pharma that sort of makes you on guard about what their response to all this might be?
1: Well, as I said, you know, I, I've been there a long time. I still have a lot of friends and connections in Big Pharma. Um, will our products one day, uh, five years from now, be marketed by Big Pharma? Possibly. I mean, that's okay. one thing that, uh, you know, the, the trend was uh, Big Pharma got rid of manufacturing in the 1970s and the 80s, they got rid of their sales forces, uh, mm. and, and slowly but surely, uh, the joke is they've gotten rid of a lot of their internal R and D. So they're basically sort of these marketing machines. Mm. Uh, and that's basically what they sit around doing nowadays. So yeah, I mean they they're pretty good at coming up with marketing strategies for drugs, uh, and most likely. Will be our partners now. Whether that's to say, you know, big pharma will be our partner, or whether it'll be specialty pharma, you know, that's still yeah, uh, yeah, okay, still okay. Out. But um, yeah, they'll have a place, um, but it'll probably look different.
0: Let's start to wind this now. Now, I am I'm very intrigued. Where does someone go if he, if for example, he finds he has cancer, he wants to find out more information about this, or he wants to find out more information about BioQuark or just get involved in this sort of area. Where does someone go to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean you can you can always just come to our website, uh, www.bioquark.com and it really uh, connects uh, sort of to our strategies and mm-hmm. uh, and where we're going, our partnerships. Um, you know, we we do not we are not a clinical company in the United States today, mm-hmm. but we and you know, we have done some initial licensing of our technology to uh, some groups overseas and you know there may be some sort of initial clinical opportunities that we're developing there that we can sure um but yeah ultimately just the website and you know, anyone can get in touch with me i mean i'd love to talk yeah you about- seem
0: perfect i mean it was very easy for you and i to to hook up with each other so i was very pleased by that so um now i i have to ask you the following question actually two questions how old are you ira I uh, I turned forty nine last week. Forty nine, you're just a baby. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah. The how do you feel about being forty nine?
1: Um, I, I'm happier. I'm. I remarked to my wife, I feel stronger and more physically fit than I ever have. And I don't. You know, I know they said <laughs> that I was going to be in my prime when I was seventeen, but I feel. <laughs> much more in my prime today than I ever did then. And I think maybe the fact I have three children Mm -hmm. um, and I think they, I mean, there's definitely, um, you know, I like to talk about the, uh, the importance of connectivity. Oh yes. Oh yes. um, Connectivity with nature or connectivity in our social interactions. But there is something about children that, you know, although they can, (laughs) they can make you mad at times, they make you younger. This uh, is true. I myself
0: have two children, and I recently did a podcast episode on intergenerational learning. Where I, one of my standard pieces of advice to stay young, which is one of the messages of the inner game of aging, is to make sure your social circles include people who are 20 years younger and 20 years older than you are to give you the broadest possible perspective. Thank you. And that wraps it for this episode of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. If that conversation felt like it ended a bit strangely, that's because I had to stop it someplace. Ira and I went on to discuss a few personal issues that gave us a little bit of fun. During that portion of the conversation, I learned that he is 49 years old and that he feels like he's in the best shape of his life. I also learned that he has a size 15C shoe. Of course, he does not buy his shoes at a regular shoe store. Very few stores will carry his size. But But I learned so much during our particular conversation, and Ira explained things so that I understood them, and I hope you did as well. You can get more information about cellular regeneration and other topics we touched on by visiting the show notes page for this episode. The URL for the show notes page is, the same pattern as always, innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA36. Before leaving for today, I would like to remind us that we all know people who who seem to be fading with the years instead of engaging these older years. These people can use our help. The older, not old message that is promoted by this podcast can inspire others to connect to a vitality that resides in all of us if we just exercise it. How can this message of the inner game of aging reach these people? Of course, the answer to that is you, the audience, the listener. Through your efforts in leaving podcast reviews and making comments and feedback and sharing the podcast links with others, you will be doing your part to help those around you to grow older without ever growing old. Podcast reviews in iTunes help others to find this podcast. The more reviews there are, the easier it is for others to discover this podcast. So you can do your part and become an ambassador for the Older Not Old message simply by leaving a review of this podcast in iTunes. And with that reminder, I will bid you farewell until the next episode. Until then.
1: Thanks for listening to the Inner Game of Aging podcast with Lee Watt. Check out more content by going to theinnergameofaging.com that's the inner game of aging, no spaces.com. Stay with us as we learn the many ways of being older without growing old.